This is weird. <laughs> hey, John in the back. Good job. Um, most of the time, I tell whoever is doing music what passage we're going to be looking at, and then I just say, pray about it and figure something out. Um, and uh, I'm just like super blessed by that song. Um, it's been a pretty rough couple of weeks for me personally. I feel really overwhelmed. Um, nothing particularly bad is happening. We're getting a new house next week, and I have some some things that I have to do to get ready for that that I'm not quite sure about. I like to be really sure about everything that's going on in my world, and I don't feel particularly assured of that. Remodeling this building for our gathering next week, and hey. Uh, couple, about a week ago, I, I woke up at like one o'clock in the morning just in a cold sweat, just thinking about all the things that needed to get done in my world. And I, I sat in bed for like two hours and finally got up at three in the morning. And I woke my wife up because I was in the shower and she goes, what are you doing? Are you okay? And I said, no, I'm not okay. I'm going to the church to scrape the floor. So I came down here and, and worked for like six hours, and I just I just needed that. But like I I don't like to be weak. I don't like to feel weak. I don't like to I don't like to be unprepared. I don't like to feel depressed. I don't like to feel out of control. And that song we just sang is like yeah, tough. You are you are weak. <laughs> But I was thinking, like, I wonder about, like, what the feeling of, like, there's a test at school that you're totally unprepared for. And you hope, like, maybe there'll be a snow day and I won't have to take it. Or maybe you're awaiting a medical diagnosis that could go pretty bad and you're just hoping that it doesn't end up that way. Or, or maybe, like, there's a, maybe it's a social situation thing and, like, oh, we're going to this party and... Oh man, if we could if I got the flu right now, that would be great so we don't have to go to this party. We're going to take a look at Matthew chapter 17 this morning, starting in verse 9 and hopefully all of that intro will make sense in a few minutes. But I'm going to read it. Matthew writes as they were coming down the mountain, remember last week Jesus was what we call transfigured in front of them. He, he, he glowed and Moses and Elijah showed up and, and Peter, James, and John were there on this mountain. And it was this amazing experience. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Don't tell anyone about the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. So the disciples asked him, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Elijah is coming and will restore everything, he replied. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they didn't recognize him. On the contrary, they did whatever they pleased to him. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. God, I, I pray that as we open your word and, and just take a look at uh, what... Maybe it's just the wrestlings of my heart, but I, I'm, I'm 
fairly confident that we're all struggling with some things right now in this weird season and, and just the, the challenges of life. God, I, I pray that you would speak by the power of your spirit, that your word and, and your posture towards us would, would shape how we live, how we think, how we feel. God, that you would renew us and strengthen us and make us more and more like Jesus as we lean in to what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So, if you remember the last several chapters of Matthew, the disciples are really struggling with this idea that Jesus is going to die. He keeps bringing it up, uh, and, and they don't like it. And a couple uh, a couple weeks ago, we took a look at um, Peter saying, you know, you're the Messiah, you're the Son of God, on that. And then the very next couple of verses, Peter gets rebuked because he says, Jesus, you'll never die. That's not going to happen to you. And then he takes his three best friends up on this mountain and shows them this immense power and glory of who he is to kind of help prove to them that he is who he says he is. But I still think the disciples are struggling with this idea. I mean, I know they are. That, that the Messiah is not supposed to die. The Savior is supposed to conquer and rule and win. And, and what is this weird thing about dying and because this has implications for them. They're his followers. He is their rabbi. If he goes to uh, Jerusalem and is killed, then they're in danger. They've quit their jobs. They've poured all of their lives into Jesus. What happens if he dies? And I'm wondering if maybe they're coming off the mountain and going, maybe he's not going to die. I mean, that was an awesome experience. Maybe every... All kinds of stuff that Jesus says is super confusing. Maybe we just misunderstood. This is going to be okay. Jesus is strong, will be strong. And Jesus says, as they're coming down, he commanded them, don't tell anybody about what you just saw until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. See, immediately he brings it back up. I'm going to die. Jesus is going to be raised from the dead, but in order to be raised from the dead, he has to die first. He bursts a bubble that maybe, maybe this could go a different direction. Maybe we could go into Jerusalem and kick out the Roman occupation and everything will be good and awesome. But Jesus goes, nope, we're still on the plan. I'm still going to die. And even if Jesus possesses the power and the authority to be raised from the dead, he still has to die first. I was thinking about it this week. What, we're, we're in the middle of an election season. What if one of the qualifications for becoming the president was to appear on like an American Idol type show, but like naked? Like if you want to be president, this is, this is how we do it. Like there's still people that would run for president, but you wouldn't want any of them. And... And then when you did become president, forever your enemies could pull up that footage whenever they wanted to make fun of you. And in a certain sense, that's the reality of the cross. Even with the resurrection on the other side of it, the cross is shameful and awful. And, and we see all of the pictures of Jesus being crucified. And he's got this like 
loincloth on. That's not the way they did it. They crucified men naked in the city streets. It was shameful and embarrassing. And, and to say, oh, I'm going to be raised from the dead. Well, that's great and all, but you're still going to go through this awful experience. And the disciples, they, they're struggling. And so they bring up some, they, 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 they move into theology and try to kind of reframe the situation. They say in verse 10, so, so the disciples asked him, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Jesus, we're, we're not really sure about this. What we've always heard is that before the kingdom is set up, Elijah is going to show up. And we just, so it Maybe, maybe you're not going to die. Maybe this thing that you're saying is the way it's supposed to happen isn't really how it's going to We've been taught our whole lives that Elijah's going to come and he's going to do this work before the end. And this comes from the book of Malachi, chapter 4. It's the one book to the left, the last book in the Old Testament. And it does say that Elijah is going to come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. And Jesus responds, he says in verse 11, Elijah is coming and will restore everything, he replied. He, he quotes what the scribes would have taught. This is, this is what you all know to be true. But then he does one of the things that he often does. He says in verse 12, but I tell you, and we've seen this before in the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard it said that uh, thou shalt not commit adultery, but I tell you, whoever looks at a woman to lust after her has already committed adultery in his heart. He, he quotes something that's common knowledge, and then he tweaks it a little bit. And so with common knowledge, Elijah is coming, and he will restore everything. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they didn't recognize him. On the contrary, they did whatever they pleased to him in the same way the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. He says, John the Baptist is functioning as in the role of Elijah. Malachi's prophecy is correct. The scribes are right. Elijah is going to come before the kingdom is established. But it already happened. Elijah is... John the Baptist. And there are people that have a more Eastern religious tendency that would try to equate this with um, reincarnation. That's totally foreign to like a Jewish framework. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Uh, in fact, Luke, in Luke chapter 1, says something very similar. Luke, Luke 1 is telling the story of the angel that comes to John the Baptist's father before he's born. And in Luke 1.16, the angel says about John, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the understanding of righteousness to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. So Jesus is saying the same thing here, that, that the role that Elijah is going to play was actually fulfilled by John. And so everything is going according to plan. And I think, like, I have to believe that the disciples are still just a little uneasy about that. Because Jesus, as, as amazing as Jesus is, as amazing he was, as he was on the mountain, this whole, like, 
I'm going to be killed. I'm going to I'm going to be turned over to the chief priests and they're going to abuse me and then I'm going to be crucified like that just doesn't feel right. And I and they're struggle I think they're struggling with this this weakness when they they feel like no, the the Messiah should have a strength to him. And it seems like there's something missing. So I want to talk about Elijah real quick. Elijah's story is in 1 Kings in the Old Testament. He's a prophet. And talking about weakness, Elijah has this, this history in Israel of, of being this prophet of power. And there's this story where he goes up on a mountain, much like Jesus just did, a nearby mountain actually, and the people of Israel are, are split at this time. Some of them are, are, are following Yahweh, and some of them are following a false god named Baal. And Baal worship is rampant throughout the country. And, and Elijah says, if you're going to follow Yahweh, follow Yahweh. But if you're going to follow Baal, follow Baal. Don't try to mix it up and be half and half. And he challenges the prophets of Baal. Basically, there's 150 of them. And he he calls them up on this mountain and he says, okay, here's the ground rules. We're each going to prepare an animal sacrifice on an altar. But we're not going to light it on fire. You call out to your God and tell him to light it on fire. And then I'll call out to my God and do the same thing and we'll see whose God answers. And so the 150 prophets of Baal start early in the morning and they start dancing and chanting and singing. And the Bible says they come themselves because that's part of the religious practice goes on for hours and hours and finally Elijah starts making fun of them. Where's that? Can he hear you? Maybe he's on vacation. Is he using the restroom? That's in the Bible. And he just mocks them. And nothing happens. No fire comes down. The sacrifice is dry. And then it's Elijah's turn and he prepares his sacrifice and he builds his altar and then he has some guys bring buckets and buckets and buckets of water and they pour the water sacrifice and completely soak it. He makes a little moat around the edge and the moat gets filled with water. And he prays to Yahweh and fire comes down from heaven. And the sacrifice is consumed and the water is vaporized and everybody cheers and briefly turns to Yahweh and there's this huge victory. And I feel like when, when we talk about Elijah, and certainly when they talked about Elijah, this is what they're talking about. Elijah's going to come in power and fire, and he's going to help the Messiah bring in the kingdom, and it's going to be awesome. But if you keep reading in 1 Kings, Elijah comes off of that mountain and the queen, a lady named Jezebel, she finds out that he has dismantled her God's worship center and threatens to kill him. And he runs away. He runs into the wilderness and he prays, God, just kill me. I can't handle it anymore. And he's worn out and depressed and anxious and fearful. And God says, 
he feeds him. And then he says, you need a nap. And then he goes to sleep, which is really great advice most of the time. Eat something and take a nap. And then Elijah gets back up and God says, you need to eat some more and go back to sleep. And after two days of this, he says, okay, now I want you to go to Mount Sinai, which is a 40-day walk. And so Elijah walks to Mount Sinai, where Moses gave the people the Ten Commandments. And he climbs up this mountain, and there's this really interesting story. God sends an earthquake. And the text says that God wasn't in the earthquake. And then he sends a whirlwind, and it's God isn't in the whirlwind. And then there's a still, small voice. And God is in the still, small voice. And we've, in the church, we've developed a lot of, like, theological baggage around that story. Like, God always speaks in a still, small voice. There's nothing in the passage that says that that has to be the case all the time. But in that story, God is trying to teach Elijah that even in his weakness, God has got him. God has got it figured out. God is walking him through it. And it strikes me that this is the part of that story of Elijah that the disciples miss. Like, they're all about Elijah should come back and he should usher in the kingdom. But what if the part of the Elijah story that's the most important part is the part where God steps into Elijah's weakness? And is with him even when he feels anxious and fearful and depressed. And this is the testimony of the entire New Testament. I've got, I just want to read some verses this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. Paul writes, this is... <laughs> This is such a great, like, backhanded compliment. Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human perspective, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something, so that no one may boast in his presence. You know what, Corinthians? You're all pretty lame. <laughs> but God shows you because he wants to be big in your life. You're weak. I'm weak. The very fact that we've been chosen to represent Jesus is a sign that God is desiring to use weak people. Romans chapter 12. This is, a, this is a famous verse. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. A living sacrifice. The mercies of God be a victorious warrior. No, 
be a sacrifice. Give yourself up willingly to the service of God. Because that's how you worship him. That's how you honor him. And don't be conformed to the way the world thinks, but be transformed in your mind. We're being called to have our whole paradigm of what it means to be a flourishing human being completely flipped on its head. How will you and I become more like Jesus? By walking in weakness. I was talking with with a friend yesterday, and he was talking about something that he has to continually remind himself of. Every day I get in this situation, I have to go, no, not, that's not true. I need to do this. This is, this is the way my flesh wants to move, but I should be moving towards the Spirit. And it's a daily reminder. And that's what Romans is talking about. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We have to be people that are constantly reminding ourselves and walking in the Spirit and saying, God, you have a different way to look at things. Your priorities are better. Your priorities are different. The way that many people want the, us to walk, want me to organize my life, want me to aspire to certain uh, pinnacles of success, that might be completely wrong. What, what do you want? Philippians chapter 4. We'll do a couple more. This is another famous verse. We put it on coffee mug. We put it on sports jerseys. Chapter 413, I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. If you read the context of that verse, if you read that whole paragraph, you recognize that Paul is saying, I am able to walk and live a life of poverty and subsistence and absolute dependence on others through Christ who strengthens me. In, in his weakness is when the power of God shows in his life. One more, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. For since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He says, we have this legacy of weak people who have walked this way for us. And he says, we get the opportunity to run with endurance. Endurance is hard. Endurance isn't required when things are easy. It's only required when things are hard. When you want to give up, that's when you get endurance. And we get it by looking at Jesus, keeping our eyes on Jesus, who is the source of our faith and the end goal of our faith. And he's also our example. The verse says, for the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross. The cross wasn't easy for Jesus. 
Jesus. He wanted to give up the Garden of Gethsemane, which we'll get to in Matthew. He says, Father, if there's any other way to do this, let's do it, because I want to do what you want me to do. But he, he walks in endurance and says, your will be done. He walks into pain and fear and suffering. It says he endured the cross, despising the shame. It's like he spat in the face of the shame for the glory that he had on the other side. We have this cloud of witnesses, all of these men and women who have gone before us over the last thousand years of church history. I want to read you a quote from one of them, a man named Andrew Murray. He's a South African pastor in the 1800s. He writes, The Christian often tries to forget his weakness. God wants us to remember it, to feel it deeply. The Christian wants to conquer his weakness and to be freed from it. God wants us to rest and even rejoice in it. The Christian mourns over his weakness. Christ teaches his servant to say, I take pleasure in infirmities. Most gladly will I glory in my infirmities. He's quoting 2 Corinthians there. The Christian thinks his weaknesses are his greatest hindrance in the life and service of God. God tells us that it is the secret of strength and success. Weakness heartily accepted and continually realized that gives our claim and access to the strength of him who said, my strength is made perfect in weakness. And as we go back to the disciples, they're still learning this lesson. They're not, they're not going to get it until after Jesus is raised from the dead, and we read their later letters, and it seems like they've kind of figured it out. But we're still learning this lesson, too. Because I, I know over the last two months, there's been a lot of weakness to go around. Some people in this country have been really sick. Many people have died. Some people have been really scared, anxious. Others have been angry, felt like they didn't have control over their lives. Some of us, I, I, I'm wired in a way that I, I want to know all the answers, and I, I just felt like I could never find them. These people say this, and these people say that, and I just don't know what the truth is, and it stresses me out. And it's easy to think, like, God doesn't want his people to be like this. And I, and I hear that sometimes. There's certain, there's certain parts of the Christian church that, that just only talk about the victory we have in Christ, and I believe that we do. But the victory we have in Christ doesn't circumvent our weaknesses. It goes straight through them. And as the disciples are trying to figure out a way that maybe Jesus doesn't have to die, he's just slowly leading them on. Come on, let's go. We're going to go through this. And he says, 
the Son of Man, in the same way that the people treated John, they're going to treat me. The same way the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. And we're, we're following the Son of Man wherever he goes. That's what, what we're supposed to be if we're Christians. And I, I am far too quickly surprised when I suffer. I'm far too quickly surprised when I'm weak. And my prayer for all of us is that we would be people that don't, don't pretend to be strong. We'd be people that don't try to hide our weaknesses. We aren't, that we wouldn't be people that try to pursue the kind of power that the world says that we should have. My prayer is that we would be people that have hope that is marked by a real, honest acknowledgement of our weaknesses, our pains, our sufferings, that we can be open about those things, whether that it's sin that we're struggling with or, or sadness or fear or anxiety or anger or all that are stirring right now. We, we need to be people that are okay recognizing that those things exist in us and that the path through them to Jesus is the path he wants us to take. That we would have just a bold assurance that God is transforming the world not in spite of those things, but through the parts of our lives that we are ashamed of, embarrassed by, troubled with, and even oppressed in. And that's, that's maybe the most countercultural thing that we could do right now as followers of Jesus, is to just lean into who we know that we are as weak people. Because his strength is bigger. His strength is better. And not try to pretend that we're strong where we're not. The disciples are going to keep wrestling with this through the next several chapters. Like I said, they're really not going to get it quite until Jesus is raised from the dead. We have the benefit of hindsight. We're on the other side of the cross. We, we can recognize the shame of the cross, but we can also glory in the resurrection and the fact that we have life in Jesus because he paid the penalty for our sin and rose from the grave and gave us new life to walk in. We have the power of the Holy Spirit, his spirit that lives inside of us. But I still feel like every day, to God about how maybe we can work out something so that it doesn't hurt so much. How it's just a little bit easier. How I, I don't need to be frustrated with that or how, why, why do, you, do I need to walk through that? Can't we just go around that? And sometimes, sometimes God's like, yeah, you don't need that. <laughs> we'll go around that. But sometimes like, no, you, you said you wanted to be like me. And if you want to be like me, we're going through that. We're going through it together. 
And Jesus leads us through it, not just with him, but with each other. And as a church, as we uh, reopen this building to begin gathering again and start moving into a little bit more normal, we are called to be people that go through it with each other, that hold up each other in our weaknesses, that build one another up, that forgive each other when we fly off the handle, that just come alongside each other when we're down, that meet each other's needs. And the challenge on that goes both ways. If, if you see a need, meet a need, right? <laughs> but also, if you have a need, have the courage to be open about what's going on in your heart, in your life. Share it. Allow the body of Christ to walk through it with you. As we close, the disciples were told not to talk about their experience on the mountain. It wasn't the right time. I mean, there were probably political reasons why everybody knowing that Jesus was glowing on the mountain wasn't a good idea for his ministry at the time. Just, just keep it on the down low. Hold it in your heart. Don't, don't tell anybody about it. But that ban has been lifted, right? Like our whole, our whole calling is to tell everybody that Jesus has been raised from the dead. And in a season where we're fighting about the rights of different people to do different things, we're fighting about who the president should be, we're fighting about global trade and all of the random things we fight about. Like Jesus has been raised from the dead. And that should be the center from which we operate. And everything that we do and everything that we are should flow out of that. So let's be people in this, this season when, when we're still struggling, when our whole city is struggling with, with, with identity and fear and, and pain. Let's be people that have answers. Maybe not all the answers, but at least one answer. Jesus has been raised from the dead. And whatever you are going through, he wants to walk through it with you. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.